Okay. <coughs> Daylight savings means you drive home and it'll still be sunny, right? That's got to be good. Except tomorrow when you go to work, it'll be dark. Except it's spring break for kids. So that means you have to stay home with your kids tomorrow. So you lose every way you go. Let's say, <laughs> uh, let's see. We have the uh, annual Cliffside NCAA bracket contest extravaganza with with the usual huge prizes that I go to Walmart and pick out for you. Guaranteed to be delightful. Um, and you know, last week or last year, Misty won. And uh, Mike Tavalero, I think, was second or third. And they had two things in common. Neither one of them listened to Jonas. And so uh, uh, let that be a lesson to you. I need to explain it again because, oh, I have it turned on. Oh, I bet 17 is not plugged into the board in back, huh? Is it laying back there? Uh, mute it first before you move it. Ah, thank you, Terry, for noticing that. I forgot. Um, if it's a number one seed, ask Jack about this because Jack, you know, has an emotional approach versus a mathematical approach. If it's a number one seed, uh, there's a reason why it's a number one seed, which means that somebody considers them to be uh, somebody considers them to be the, the four best teams in the country, and a number sixteen has never beaten a number one in the history of the tournament. That goes back well seventy-five years, I think. So if you think this is the year that's going to happen, you are the only one in the country that does so. So I would I would tell you that is there skill involved in this? No, there's none. You won. Oh, the the time that you won, there was skill. The rest of the time, it's pure luck. But you can take a mathematical approach, and sometimes the math pays off. In other words, you just take the highest seed all the way through. But as you know, somebody will take a lower seed. And if you'll pick the champion, um, then you have the best chance of winning. So, uh, also there's a buy-in, um, there's a first round that you have to circle the winner of, uh, this year. So, uh, and I don't know where they place into the tournament, but I know they do. Oh, I see them now. They, you can see this first round, you pick that one, and then you, that places them in here. And if you want them to continue, Last year was the first time in the history of the tournament that that buy-in uh, got to the final four. That was Virginia Commonwealth, so be alert to that. Uh, are the prizes really cool? Yes. Yes, they are. They are, for those who have won it. So do not go home. The buffet, you're all welcome to stay for the buffet, as usual. 
we still have chips left over from Christmas, I see. And so, uh, uh, please stay for that. But do not go home without your bracket filled out and your name on it. And usually we have about, I know today's daylight savings and, and uh, people are missing, but normally we have about 30 so or 30 or so people participate, and that will be the case. I have people who are calling me uh, already, telling me they want in, and, and they want to e- email their bracket because of the huge prizes. Okay, so I wanted to read this really fast because I'll refer to it. This is from one of our internet uh, listeners, as you know, they outnumber us a hundred to one now easily. And, and let me say this really fast so that you know, as soon as the um, the uh, website goes up and is operating, we're going to make every effort that we can to move out of the, out of here. So we're kind of waiting for that to, to be the case because we have now learned that four o'clock on Sunday just simply won't work. There's just nothing we can do to make it work, and it isn't working. And we just got to admit it. To keep doing it is uh, is silly. So we're going to do our best to go find our own place again to where we can at least uh, uh, have some uh, have some consistency. Every, every now and then uh, we have a huge day where everybody feels guilty and they show up. But that's not going to happen in the summer. We know that. We can't beat the Super Bowl. We can't beat Daylight Savings. We're not going to beat July 4th. What's that? Huh? I can't hear you. Gardening. Yeah, we're not going to beat gardening. Uh, We're certainly not going to beat fishing. So we have to do the best we can and and admit that this this experiment is exactly that, an experiment. Okay, this is from Sharon. You might remember her, uh, and, and I'll hand it out. I'm not going to, don't have time to read it all, but um, uh, you remember, you'll remember here in a minute who she is. Uh, she gives her phone number and her uh, email address. And she actually, this is the only church she has, is us. And I would say, just based on uh, the statistical analysis that I have had, um, there's probably uh, at least a hundred of these folks out there, out of the ones that are listening to us, which is, in the, uh, as you know, is in the many hundreds every week. Dear Pastor Stephen, enclosed is a check that may or may not cover the cost of a lapel mic. She is frustrated that we have this problem, which is one of the reasons we need to get out of here, because uh, we're sharing our equipment with uh, New Grace, and it is not working. Enclosed is a check that may or may not cover the cost of a lapel mic, so when you're writing on your legendary platinum model uh, whiteboard that we out in the Internet land must take on faith exists there in Anchorage, we won't miss what you're saying since we're already missing what you're writing. I know, nag, nag. But you can't be world-renowned without having some issues come up, you know. Just think, you have sermonaudio.com to thank for all my contributions. I understand you are planning to have a donate option at your website, but for now, checks are the preferred method. That works for me since I'm employed by the post office and I'm advanced enough in age to prefer the old-fashioned way of doing things. People have called me an anachronism, and I'm sure using stamps is what they were referring to. 
Interesting how much your name is in that word now that I think about it. <laughs> Anachronism and chronister. So we know what we're up against with Sharon, aren't we? <laughs> Since you have coined a new word for the next revision in the dictionary, I hesitate to request yet another change to my adjective. If you remember, she last wrote us and said she wanted to be defined as sardontic instead of sarcastic. And I made fun of her because there is literally no difference between the two words. And she got she got that. Uh, I know I requested to be referred to as sardontic rather than sarcastic, but on further research, I really must read the dictionary more often. (laughs) There really isn't as much difference in the words as I thought, except in my own mind which carries no credentials at all to anyone but me. I thought sardontic was a kinder, gentler word than sarcastic, but I apparently was wrong. That will come as a shock to all my children, I'm sure. And although I applaud your creativity and think sarcontic is a fine addition to our lexicon, might I ask to be referred to as satirical? It adds a bit of wit and irony to the middle image, at least it does to mine. Might I also be permitted to question, to address some questions? I am aware the cliffside policy is rarely to respond to the Q word with an A word. <laughs> with your customary policy of Q and Q sessions. But allow me the exercise in futility anyway, if such it be. I need all the exercise I can get, and jumping to conclusions gets so repetitive and tiring. And so she gives a bunch of questions that I'm going to write her back because she's been so faithful and and wonderful to us. To all you there at Cliffside, my warmest Christian hugs and gratitude for your assembly in Anchorage, although you really should consider a relocation to Texas, preferably Pampa or at least Amarillo, which is where Sharon lives. So if you would like to read the rest of it, it's uh, very cleverly written and just get it from Lori. And she is an example of what kind of audience we have out there. Um, and they're all the same. They all write us the same way. They all are very much satirical, which is exactly how I would want it. Okay. Kids, you're out of here if there's any of you today. And if there aren't very many kids here, just bring them back up and do what you need to do. Uh, And that's one of my issues with being here is there's no ability to to, uh, activate uh, listening into the uh, nursery. And some of these subjects that I'm doing are pretty important, and I hate to see people miss them. Um, I want everybody to share in the misery. Are we ready, Terry? Okay, here we go. March 11, 2012, lecture discussion number 60 on the book of Romans. And i got to say this right off the bat. Last week, lecture number 59 was a mess. And I haven't listened to it, and very likely I won't listen to it. For those of you who uh, listened to this class on the Internet, towards the end, uh, I became disoriented and unable to concentrate. Uh, I need to add a disclaimer to, to that lecture in my defense, I had been running a fever and uh, for quite a while, quite a few days, and not sleeping well, and I think I'm still struggling with it. And it culminated, came to critical mass last Sunday. I actually got to the place towards the end, and I was talking to Matt about it earlier, 
and he was wondering if he was watching, uh, what did you say, Matt, a heart attack starting to come on or some kind of medical condition. I was, I was doing badly and unable to actually even read my own handwritten notes, which I write as big as possible. So uh, could I get you to kill those lights back there, Terry, the, the floodlights? They're right in my face, and, and uh, that'd be great. Thank you. The back ones for sure. I'm staring at them now. now they're still on. There we go. There we go. Now I'm completely in darkness, which, which is fine. At least I can see I, the spots will start to go away. So pretty much I'm repeating what I did last week. But uh, so I got to repair that. Uh, the material is too important to leave in disarray. And needless to say, my schedule for arriving at James chapter two is going to be delayed uh, because you see it's quite important to satisfactorily expose the flaws of logic contained within the false view that is commonly referred to as soul sleeping or soul sleep or soul sleepers. You may be familiar with it, you may be not, um, but uh, I have to I have to uh, get rid of it uh, because it, it can't be defended scripturally. And I have to defeat the misappropriation of scriptures uh, that are utilized by those who hold to soul sleeping, who teach it. They knock on your doors, they bring you little tracks, and uh, they're totally convinced that they're correct. And they have a huge following, and no one ever uh, uh, declares to them that it's just an indefensible view scripturally. As is always the case, uh, supposed teachers will find Bible passages that uh, can be uh, cleverly misrepresented in order to make them seem as if they teach a particular view. And that is the that is certainly most evident with soul sleep. The Bible, uh, just to start out this way, the Bible does not stutter on this issue. The Bible is unequivocal. It is certain. It's declarative. The soul spirit survives physical death and remains conscious. That is what the Bible teaches. It teaches the continuity of soul. What I mean by that is your soul spirit continues to be conscious and it continues in existence. The essence of you, God does never calls you a physical body. He always calls you a living soul. You are an immaterial property, not a physical property. And the immaterial or the mental property um, survives physical death. There is, it's unequivocal. There is nothing but that in Scripture. Yet some will nonetheless dispute what I just said and, and, um, and come up with this convoluted uh, view called soul sleep. And there's others. Annihilationism is another one that's just as flawed and just as indefensible. And it causes me to question them. Is this just poor scholarship? And I don't think so anymore. They're not mistaken. They're intentional. It is an intentional deception. And I believe, as you know, with the same financial agenda and control that plagues the church today. Put it another way. Do they know that they know that they're wrong? Yes. It isn't innocent. It's deliberate. They know they're wrong. They don't care. They have an agenda. Now, you may think that that's pretty harsh. I've talked to them. They refuse. Uh, 
they absolutely refuse to give up on their tradition because their tradition enriches them. And to give up on it would cost them. And if that's the case, by the way, if I'm right about that, then it raises the, the issue to a whole nother level. This becomes a Nicolaitan issue, Revelation 2.6. Jesus Christ, creator God, says this about the deeds of the Nicolaitans. He says this, they're ominous, solemn words. I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. That's God in the flesh using the word hate about the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So that's where we're going to go today, and that's where we're going to stay today, and hopefully I can successfully navigate through the soul's sleep, and we can move along, and that remains to be seen. And now here's where I want to insert Sharon from Texas. Uh, I read your letter, Sharon. Hi, Sharon. Uh, during the pregame announcements, or most of your letter, and the church, or the small group here, have agreed to accept satirical as your adjective. And we thank you for writing again. Especially I thank you. Uh, it's wonderful uh, to receive brilliantly written satirical commentary. And I want you to tell your children. And today I'm going to be addressing item six of your letter. Though that may not be readily apparent. Item six was for her Alzheimer's. Um, she has a concern for Alzheimer's if you read her letter. And as you know, my mother is one of the longest surviving Alzheimer's victims in the history of keeping records of that disease. Uh, my sister put together a photo kind of montage over time. My mother in high school, my mother through life, and my mother today. And it is shocking to see it. It'll be shocking to see me. Uh, and needless to say, last week when I was uh, disoriented at the end, I got all the way to the last four or five uh, uh, pages and realized that I had no capability to finish it correctly, it dawned on me that I needed more Diet Coke. Because, as you know, the aluminum poisoning and the aspartame fights Alzheimer's. It's my theory. And I'm sticking to it uh, with, that's all I got. That and Worcestershire sauce. Those are my two, uh, two plans. My mother was a health nut. She was very careful what she ate, very careful what she did. Uh, kept her weight uh, and her physicality, and it made no difference. And I can't wait to mock her for it. I'm kidding about that. She would tell us all the time, you cannot eat that, you cannot drink this, or you will have some kind. And bless her heart, didn't quite work out. So I share that with, uh, with Sharon, and that's what I'm going to be doing today. I'm going to be talking about uh, the physical dependency of the mind and the brain uh, with regard to aptitude and skill, uh, skills and, and logic and reasoning and all of that. But also what I'm really talking about is self-awareness today, your self-awareness. And as an aside, Sharon, item number one uh, that you asked about, Romans 8.1, is coming because um, I'm in Romans 4, almost 5 now, so and it's only taken 60 lectures, so Romans 8 should be up on the, on the docket in a year or so, and I, I anticipate your comments then. But Romans 8.1 is coming, and that is, uh, as you know, uh, she asks uh, about, I always talk about our beating that we're going to get. And what I mean by that is the judgment seat of Christ. But for now, um, for Sharon's sake, wood, hay, and straw 
versus gold, silver, and precious stones. You'll see those set side by side, 1 Corinthians 3.12, and the beatings, Sharon, equals the fire. Romans 8.1 says no condemnation, and you will see that that equals 1 Corinthians 3.15. Okay, that was for the internet folks, and specifically Sharon. So uh, now let's go and re-begin this uh, uh, that I did last week, is, and hopefully... I get it fixed. Uh, I'm going to re-begin it a little bit differently so I don't bore those who were here last week. I'm going to re-begin it with Dinesh D'Souza and Christopher Hitchens, and you may be familiar with them. They're two men, uh, Mr. Hitchens has passed away now, but they're two men who often debated substance dualism versus monistic physicalism, and they went all around the world and debated, and they were very good friends, and uh, obviously uh, they disagreed profoundly, though they respected each other, I believe. That was the case, at least listening to Mr. D'Souza. And Hitchens uh, was known for consistently pointing out that it was illogical for Christian dualists uh, to credit God only for providence. And if you remember last week, I put some stuff on the board. One of the things that we have to get understood besides um, uh, all the uh, is, is providence, God's providence or God's goodness, how that fits in this discussion of, your, of the existence of your soul spirit. Why that has to be there in order for your soul spirit to exist. You have to understand the relationship between God's goodness and the fact that you are dualistic or that you have two substances. One substance uh, non-physical and one substance physical. Okay, but Hitchens was known for pointing out that Christian dualists, uh, they credit God only for the goodness without assigning him blame for the evil. Hitchens would frame it kind of like this, uh, and I'm, I'm attributing this to him, though uh, it probably isn't perfectly accurate, but I think it represents what he would say most of the time. He would say, some designer you Christians have. You're so proud of your designer, some designer, because he would point out the sun is scheduled to explode, and when it does, what will it do? It will destroy all life on earth. Why didn't your great God, your good designer, your designer that you're so proud of, you little puny Christians, why couldn't he design the solar system to continue into perpetuity and not just destroy itself in a ball of flame? Perpetuity. Is he not able? Which means what? Is God not smart? Is he not able or is he not willing to design a solar system in a good way. How can you assign only goodness to him and not assign the destruction that he has also put in the universe? And what is wrong with that statement? You should immediately catch the flaw in what I just said. I hope you did. Now, unfortunately, and Dinesh D'Souza, another very brilliant man, both these men extraordinarily extraordinary intellect, certainly well beyond my capabilities, and uh, their education certainly uh, is well beyond any education that I would uh, have ever thought of having. But um, unfortunately, and you know where I'm headed now, Dinesh D'Souza would respond with plate tectonics. What do I mean by that? He would respond to the designer question of Hitchens with plate tectonics which is the geological plates that are beneath the the surface, beneath the ocean surface, beneath the surface of the earth. And when those plates shift, what happens? We have an earthquake. So D'Souza is essentially saying 
that the shifting of geological plates cause earthquakes. That's his response to why did your designer design the sun to explode and kill everybody? So you might find that puzzling. But that's how D'Souza responds. The shifting of geological plates causes earthquakes, which are admittedly bad. Earthquakes admittedly bad. Why are they admittedly bad? Because they kill things. They cause the death and the destruction of things. At least how we view destruction. They tear down our buildings that fall on top of us. And I went through the 1964 earthquake. Trust me, the buildings will fall down on us. And the, uh, the earth will open up and swallow us. I saw it. I'm a witness. But that's what he will say. He says, earthquakes, admittedly bad. But the collision of these plates also caused the land mass to emerge from the ocean. That's what D'Souza said. Thereby what? Allowing man to, to exist, which is good. So D'Souza submits that we should see destructive earthquakes as secondary evidence of something good. Which Hitchens would respond back, what is the goodness in the explosion of the sun that destroys everything? Both men, like I said, certainly of significant intellect and education, well beyond me, both have posited very flawed responses to what is really the classical question or the classical problem of the existence of evil. All that Hitchens is saying is, why is there evil? If you're going to assign good to God, you must therefore assign evil to God. Do we have Christian denominations, Christian doctrine, that assigns the creation of evil to God? Yes, we do. They're all over the place. They outnumber us, obviously. I say obviously for you interneters to today's attendance. Now, by the way, the interneters are beginning to think that they have control or can seize control at any time. So you have to laugh a lot louder at my jokes to hold them off. Make them think there's more of us. I did tell you that there are some uh, thinking about coming to visit us out of Michigan. <sighs> we'll have to pretend it's a pastor's funeral that day and try to get as many people here as we can possibly get and see what happens. But we're we'll have to hire people just to, just to intimidate them. Anyway, both men, Hitchens and D'Souza, have posited very flawed responses to this classical question or problem of the existence of evil. Hitchens disregards something. What does he disregard? He assigns, as does many doctrinal uh, seminaries in this country, he, exhausts, or he assigns the uh, existence of evil to what? To God. And that's a flawed concept. What do we, what do I assign the existence of evil to? If I could have one word, what would I assign it to? You said it. Yes. Yes. Will. I will assign it to the existence of will. And as Kathy in the front row says, the existence of free will. So I have, my response is not God, it's will. What's the obvious question next? 
Why is there will? Where does will come from? What's the purpose of will? Why did he incorporate will? Do we really have will? Physicalism, as you know, will say we don't have will, that everything is random and purposeless. There is no free will. We'll have to get to that, won't we? But anyway, Hitchens, Hitchens disregards human will. Also, what other will does he disregard? Angelic will. So I have human and angelic, and, and angelic will, and D'Souza likewise does that, by the way. He disregards human and angelic will by arguing plate tectonics and earthquakes are actually good, even though they kill. And he has this, this uh, dichotomy, if you will, of, e- of good and evil, or destruction and, and creation side by side. Um, and that, that certainly is going to, well, let me tell you what it'll do. D'Souza tries to mitigate death with the argument that life exists through a process of death or destruction. What's that? Yeah, that's evolution. Very good. That's evolutionary philosophy. That's exactly what that is. Stated then as this, something must die or something must be destroyed for life to advance. God used, if you will, he used a destructive process, earthquakes and death, in order to cause life to exist. A theological evolutionary mixture which, by the way, is uh, ridiculous and indefensible biblically. There is no possibility, and every evolutionist that I have ever debated starts out by saying, don't get up here and try to reconcile the Bible with an evolutionary uh, concept. Do not have a position that says God used evolution to create. You will just make a fool out of And I know that's true. And I would never even think to advance that kind of concept. Anyway, but it's very popular today. Uh, You'll find it everywhere in the church. They're so pleased that they can be accepted by academics uh, by having evolution uh, placed in the Bible somewhere, when in fact all they have done is make a fool of themselves. And the academics... uh, uh, laugh at us for doing such silliness. There is no continuity. There is no nothing but collision between evolutionary philosophy and the Bible. I'll prove that again today as is my uh, habit. So, Sousa, something must die for life to advance. Evolutionary philosophy. And, and we know that isn't true. Both of them are not true. The original design was what? What was the original design? It was good. Why was it good? Because of the goodness of God or the providence of God. God is pure good. He has no evil. He doesn't cause evil. I know you're going to bring Isaiah up to me, and I'll show you that uh, that, that that is not what you think it is. So what has caused death? What has caused evil? If God is not the source of it, or actually more correctly, who has caused death? Who has caused evil? When did it happen? Why did it happen? Those are the right questions, as you know. And I bring this up again uh, in order to bring will into the discussion. Because you cannot have a discussion about substance dualism or the fact that you have mental properties that are not physical and cannot be reduced to physical uh, to any physical mass or property. In other words, as I said before, a thought has no weight, it has no location, it has no uh, spatial size. There's nothing physical about it at all. No mass. It cannot be reduced to particles. 
So the fact that you are a mental property and a physical property, and the mental property cannot be reduced to physical, and therefore the implication is, is that the mental property survives the death of the physical, that all has to be discussed with will. I have to bring will into that discussion, and uh, into its proper place uh, within the subject of the existence of the immortal soul in order to answer the question properly, in order to come to the conclusion that the soul exists. The will is critically important, and that's why I did it just now. Now, we, I, me, went through Ecclesiastes 9 again last Sunday. And I hope I did that right. I think I was still functioning when I did that. I hope so. That's the only reason to put that last week's lecture on the Internet is if I did a good job on Ecclesiastes 9. <coughs> Ecclesiastes 9 is brought up all the time by the soul sleepers as evidence of soul sleep. And I, I think, uh, I hope you, uh, as I said, I did that well enough that everybody understands the difference between a living dog and a dead lion. Living dogs and dead lions. That's what Ecclesiastes 9 is about. It is not about teaching that the soul is... Uh, disabled, or the soul is sleeps, or the soul is annihilated, or the soul is unconscious at physical death until such time as God reactivates it. That is not what Ecclesiastes 9 teaches, even though they will claim that it does. It is talking about instead choosing. It is talking about will, choosing, the free will choice uh, to choose salvation. And then, uh, then after the choice of salvation or the, or the rejection of salvation, accountability and judgment to repeat. The living dog still has an opportunity to choose salvation. The dead lion has nothing. It's appointed for every man to die, uh, Hebrews 9.27. Understand the relationship of Ecclesiastes 9 and Hebrews 9.27. Ecclesiastes 9 is about choosing salvation and then the accountability or the judgment, Ecclesiastes 12.14. Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for every man to die and then what? Judgment, it's the same pattern. If you look at Ecclesiastes 9 and Hebrews 9 and put them together, you will never have a problem with soul sleep there. You understand what a living dog is and what a dead lion is. The living dog can still make a free will decision. Will. Why can it make a free will decision? Why do you have free will? A living dog can make a free will decision. A dead lion has have, have had their reward. Matthew 6.16, and now face judgment. So read Ecclesiastes 9 with Hebrews 9.27 and understand it's a free will uh, issue and not a soul sleep issue and you'll be fine. Now let's read Psalm 6.5 and question whether this, this is another one they put up there all the time. They say Psalm 6.5, I did make the statement or I tried to make the statement, it doesn't matter when they knock on my door, which one of these passages they happen to bring, what do I do with all of them? I beat them all to death. Let's read 6.5 and question whether they are correct. Let's not question whether they are correct. Let's declare they're not correct. When they say that 6-5 Psalms is teaching about the death of the body and the spirit soul of man going into an unconscious state. They insist that 6-5 Psalms is uh, telling us the person who dies remains in this sleeping condition, this unaware condition, until the resurrection. Okay, here we go. Psalm 6-5. Ah, 
For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? They will say, there, see? Silly person who answered the door in your bathrobe. And I gave you all these wonderful tracts. Please read the tracts and give me money. See there, for in death there is no remembrance of you. That means to them that you have no memory in death. Now what it says. Let me start, let me give it to you. Let's ask a couple questions. Who is the you in that sentence? It's a capital U. The you, big U. Big U as opposed to little U. There is no remembrance of God. For in death there is no remembrance of God. Okay? Define remembrance. What is, uh, what is remembrance? What's the purpose of remembrance? Why do we remember God? When I say I remember God, what am I saying? When remembrance is used with respect to God, what does it mean? Does it mean my memory of him? I remember God. He was, he's a nice guy. Good taste in clothes. Drives a good car. Is that what remembrance with respect to God is? Clearly, it is not. So what is it? It is thankfulness. There is no thankfulness. Who doesn't have thankfulness? For in the grave, who's in the grave? There will be, who will give you thanks? For in death there is no thankfulness of you. The dead lions don't have any thankfulness. Who will give God thanks? That's a rhetorical question. It has a rhetorical implication. What is the implication of who will give God thanks? It's that no one will give God thanks. So who are the no ones? They're the dead lions. Where are they? They are the unsaved dead. Where are the unsaved dead? Where is the intermediate state for the unsaved dead? Intermediate meaning that they are not yet resurrected for judgment. They're in an intermediate state, and they will not give thanks. Now, what's fascinating to me is they have the capability of not giving thanks, right? What's that mean? They have capability. They couldn't. They can't give thanks because they won't give thanks, by the way. God receives no thankfulness uh, when, the, uh, when they were alive, and now in death there will be no thankfulness again. Except this time it's elevated to hate. So I hope you can see that Psalm 6-5 is not about the inability to give thanks. It's not about the unconsciousness, the inability to remember, to give remembrance. But instead it's about what? It's about will. That's why we have to keep talking about human will. They have will. How do they have will? They still have human free will. And they're dead. The dead are unwilling. These dead are unwilling to remember God. And that is why they are defined as dead, by the way. Because that's a Revelation 2014 term. God defines death. He does not define death as physical, by the way. How does he define it? Death to God is not physical death. It is spiritual death. Okay, Psalms 13, 1 through 4. Another place 
when they knock on your door. They will tell you. This is more evidence, they will say to you, of soul sleeping. So let's read this one. This is what's called the How Long Blues. I don't know if you've ever played the How Long Blues on your guitar, but it's a famous blues song. Psalm 13.1. How long, O Lord, will you forgive me forever? Let me repeat it. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Now, the sleep of is in italic, which means it's not in the original. So let me repeat it this way. Lest I sleep the death. But I'll go ahead and grant you for the sake of discussion, if you want to argue that this is about soul sleep, I'll go ahead and concede that. Lest I sleep the sleep of death, I'll give that to you. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed against them, lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. That's the key to the whole thing right there. Lest I sleep the death. Is Psalm 13.3 Obvious question, teaching that the mental properties, the soul, the spiritual substance, goes into a condition of senselessness. Is that what it's teaching? Where there's no perception, there's no intelligence, there's no intentionality, there's no subjectivity. That at physical death, our minds cease all function. Is that what it's teaching? Does the Bible teach that there in Psalms 13.3? And those who teach soul sleep are adamant that it does. It's evident to me that Psalm 13.3 certainly does not. And again, notice the context. This is the what? This is the how longs. There's four of them. The how longs. Who cries out how long? Who cries out? Yeah, Israel does. The how longs are the cry of the nation of Israel. When? It's a tribulational prophecy, isn't it? It's the cry of the martyrs, the souls under the altar at Revelation 6.10. They are also crying out, how long? Psalm 13 and Revelation 6 connect to each other. Revelation 6, for those who take Scripture literally, is definitive evidence of the continuity of the soul. Because the souls are underneath the altar also crying out, how long? And by the way... um, Uh, Let me go a different direction. Regardless, Psalm 13 is David crying out as Israel will. So David and Israel share this relationship. David becomes, if you will, a type of Israel in that his experience reflects them and is an example for them. Everything in the Old Testament is a picture of Christ, by the way. Christ is on every page, but there's also types of the Antichrist, and in this case, a type of Israel. And David is crying out as Israel, and he cries out, Will you forget me forever? And again, another rhetorical question. What's the answer? Will you forget me forever? What's the answer, the implied answer? No. Will Israel be forgotten forever? No. Do the people that knock on your door say yes? Yes, they say yes. Why? They think they're the 144,000. They think they're Israel. They're the replacement of Israel. It's called replacement theology. When will you no longer hide your face? What's implied to that? There's an answer. What's the answer? 
a time. What's implied by a time? There will come a time when God will no longer hide his face. From who? From David, literally, prophetically, Israel. It's Psalm 22.1. It is why Christ quotes Psalm 22.1 on the cross. It's one of his seven sayings. He is demonstrating to Israel that what is happening before them is Psalm 22. And that they will cry out, My God, my God, why will you forsake us? Why have you forsaken us? Because Christ never calls himself my God or the Father my God. He always calls him calls the Father my Father. So he clearly is quoting Psalm 22, 1, to let Israel know that that prophecy is occurring for them or will occur for them because of the rejection of his Messiahship. And by the way, they all got that. Psalm 13 is as is Psalm 22.1. It's a prophecy of the coming cries of Israel as they begin to mourn for the rejection of Jesus Christ. Zechariah 12.10. It has nothing to do with soul sleep. Nothing. And within the question of how long is the implication or the realization that there is an end to the hiding of his face, as I said, an end to the sorrow, the rejo- an end to the rejoicing of the enemies of Israel. Will God forget Israel forever? No, he won't. And he says so over and over again. And David asks for his eyes to be enlightened, for wisdom, before he is moved. Now that's really cool. That's one of the real reasons I wrote it. Or I'm sorry, I wrote it. I read it today. Let those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. I have prevailed against him, lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. Sorry, I said that badly, I think. What's he mean by that? When he's moved. Where's he moved to? And it's him. When I am moved. He doesn't say when my body's moved. He says, when I am moved, his soul spirit will be moved at physical death. What's the obvious question? Where's it going? Where does the Bible say it's going? His physical body will appear as if it's sleeping prior to decay. But I am moved. The soul sleepers, by the way, never notice the I am moved part. Psalm 13 is the opposite of soul sleep. I need to repeat this once more because I mangled it so badly last Sunday. Whenever the Bible speaks of death in the sense of sleep, always it is used for the body only. Soul or sleeping with respect to death is only used for the body, only the body, never the soul spirit. Never is it said in the Bible that the soul spirit sleeps, only the body sleeps. Understand that. And the symbol sleep, when it's used as a, in reference to death, is only used for believers. Sleep of the body is never used for unbelievers. Only for believers. So the believers' bodies sleep. Unbelievers' bodies do not sleep. What's the obvious question? Why that distinction? Why is this the case? Because God sees the death of the believing saved uh, as only a temporary suspension of their physical activity. What is the purpose of their physical activity? Why do we have, why does he say believers sleep? Because we are to do something here. What is it that we're supposed to do? Serve. We're in service. 
Physical death to God for believers is the temporary suspension of your service. Your physical service. That's why he never uses it with respect to unbelievers. Because unbelievers are never what? They're never in service. So they never have any temporary suspension. They're never in service and they're never going to be in service. They're dead. As God defines death. God does not see the physical death of the unsaved non-believing the same way he sees the physical death of the believing. That's why sleep only applies to believers' bodies. Never does sleep ever apply to soul of unbelievers or believers. Now, let's consider some common questions with respect to this subject. These are, these are elementary questions. Questions that you have to have. And you'll recognize them, I'm sure, if you went through any kind of college philosophy or theology class. But they need to be into the record. If, if I were to hypothetically concede the premise that, uh, the premise that the spirit soul does sleep upon physical death, what's the obvious question now? If I conceded that, they knocked on my door, handed me the track, told me they were the 144,000, and I said, okay, I agree with you, the soul sleeps. I'll concede it. What comes next? That's the question. Then what? If the soul is sleeping, describe it. Describe the process to me. Where does it sleep? By the way, that's spatially unextended because the soul has no mass, has no charge, has no location, has no size. So where is it, I'm going to ask them, and I do. Where is my soul when it's sleeping? What does my soul look like when it's sleeping? Does it have a location? Because if they say yes, I have them, don't I? Then I ask them, is is there a soul collection agency? Is the soul spirit, if the soul spirit, if they have the annihilation view, and some of them do, if the soul spirit is annihilated to physical death, then we must deal with what's called illusionary impartation. Now, I touched on that a couple of weeks ago. What I mean by that is God recreating me. See, if my soul is annihilated, then what has he got to do? He's got to make a new soul, doesn't he? He's got to make a new body, too. The body's dissolved. So I have a new body and a new soul. Is it me? If he takes my memories, he knows my memories, right? If he takes my memories and he puts it into my soul and puts my soul into his new body, and, and my, so i got a new soul, I have the old memories, is it really me? And I ask this question, if you have a beloved dog or cat or any pet, and I told you after it died, here's how it's going to go. I'm going to take... Um, your original dog is gone, but I'm going to make a perfect copy of it, and I'm going to put in all the memories of it that, that it had. Is it the same dog? Is that good enough for you? Are you happy? No, it's not the same. Well, you won't be the same. If I told beautiful children, your child perishes, and I'm going to make a new child looks just like it, and I'll put the memories in it for you, because I know what the memories are. I am over here where I collect memories. Is that your child? No, it's not. That's called illusionary impartation. If the spirit soul is annihilated at physical death, then we've got to deal with illusionary impartation. You have God 
artificially infusing our memories into a, a creation of a new being. And we'll have to deal more of that later. That comes up next week, more so. A little bit this week. A little bit more. Page 11, I think. The soul sleepers don't want to deal with that problem. They know that the annihilation problem causes that. That's the biblical holism people. They have to deal with illusionary impartation. They don't know it. And, and when they come to my door, that's the first thing I ask them. And they don't come anymore, bless their hearts. The soul sleepers know that's a big problem, and they're not willing to go to the point of continued unconsciousness. So they want you to think of a, of a floating about unaware oblivious soul. And that's why I ask them, is there a collection department? Does God send angels to collect a supernatural garbage truck kind of device? Uh, because uh, you consider then your first question upon being brought to consciousness. If your soul sleeps and your body goes into dissolvement and your soul is brought into consciousness along with the body brought to resurrection and the two are put together, what's the first question that you have if you have been unconscious for an extended period or any period of time, unaware? What's the first question? I saw you mouth it. Give it to me. Where am I is the first question, a fantastic question. Where, not only where am I, but where have I been? And then the next question off of that becomes really obvious, doesn't it? How do I know it's me? How do I know it's me is critical to all of this. Are we the sum total of our memories? Because if that's the case, I'm in what? I'm in big trouble. And anybody over my age or older knows that memory, if I am defined by my memories, holy mackerel, honey child, it ain't going good. Are we the sum total of our memories or are our responses and our reactions to our memories? How, how do I know it's me? Or is it our self-awareness, what's called qualia? What defines me? Here's the question. What makes me, me? I must know that me is me. I gotta know me is me. Right now, I know that me is me. And you must know that you is you. Is there anyone here that does not know that you is you? We have also, uh, along with that, the expression of identity. I just did it. I know that me is me. If the soul spirit becomes unaware of its identity, what are the consequences to that loss of awareness of self? This is called the problem of identity. You have the mind-brain problem. You have the identity problem. All discussions of the mind-brain problem must deal with the problem of identity. Do we lose our identity at death? Does soul sleep cause the loss of self-identity? Do we lose our identity at death? If identity is lost, what's the obvious question? Can it be recovered? 
What is the process of recovery? And careful, by the way, that you don't go back to artificial infusion because that rises up here, illusionary identity. You then make God into a large-scale generator of unfounded illusions at the moment of general resurrection. What would be the difference between cessation of existence and soul sleep if I cannot prove self-identity? I have to be able to prove self-identity at resurrection. I have to. I have to know me as me. And I also have to know something else. What's the one thing? Bonnie and Bill are not here. Their son, Dirk, tragically murdered a couple years ago now. What's the one thing they have to know at the resurrection? They have to know Dirk is Dirk. They have to know that. And Dirk has to know that Dirk is Dirk. I have to be able to prove self-identity not only to myself, but to you. Again, what makes me, me? My knowing that it's me. I have to know in order for me to be me. Does that make sense to you at all? And if it doesn't, that's perfectly okay. Because my goal is to make you go out of here going, how do I know me as me? How do I know you as you? Yes, go ahead. We've got two minutes. They absolutely do. Uh, Karina and James, uh, they, they just went through this. The lady knocked on the door. Can you imagine me asking her this? She would have just gone and ran. Because they have no idea that, that, uh, that they are dealing with unfounded illusion. They have no idea that they've made God into an illusionist by soul sleeping. How can you prove to yourself that you are you? How can you be sure that your loved ones are truly themselves? It's called the problem of recognition, the problem of self-identity. I submit there's only one way that it can be done. There's only one way that you can prove that you are you. Me is me. Them is them. There's only one way it can be proved. You can do it now. How do you know you exist now? How many of you... Can you imagine me doing this to the 8th grade... Uh, science class, because I did. I wish Katrina was here. How can you, how do you know you exist now? Does anybody in this room believe they don't exist? Why do you believe you exist? How can you prove it to the person sitting next to you? Here's the resurrection. <laughs> yeah, Talia just said, I'm pretty confident Steve doesn't exist. Not talking about me, but about her husband. See, see. So Sharon, you are not the only satirical one that comes to these lectures, even uh, on an internet basis. How do I know you exist now? I know you exist, and I know that you know you exist. How do I know you exist at the resurrection? We're all going to be in the air, and we have to have self-identity. We have to have it. We have to also be able to prove to ourselves that it's us, and we have to be able to prove to the others that it's, that it's them and us. We have to have what we have now. We have it now, don't we? We have to be able to repeat it after death. What is the only way it's repeatable? 
See, we have to apply what is true to me and you now. I'll slow down. I know I exist and I know that I am me. Therefore, I apply that to you. Concluding that it's true for all of us. You are the same as me. I know I exist and I know that I am me. You know that you exist and you know that you are you. If you allow any position to creep into your doctrine that affects self-identification, then resurrection has been ruined. I hope you understand that. Resurrection has become illusionary. It's an artificial impartation, an artificial stuffing in of memories into something that isn't really you. You can't allow that. That's what soul sleep does. Does that make sense? That's what's wrong with soul sleep. That's what's wrong with annihilationism. There is no true resurrection without continuity of soul. What have I just proved to you? That if God is good, and He's what? Perfectly good, then there must be something in order to prove you are you after the resurrection. What's that? Continuity of soul. If you do not have continuity of soul, you cannot prove that you exist. You cannot prove that you are you. You cannot believe that you are you. And you have rendered God to be what? An illusionist, which means what? He's not good. So you've destroyed the character of God and you've destroyed your own resurrection. And you have no hope. There is no blessed hope. We're all doomed. Continuity of soul. That is the solution. Your soul continues to survive after physical death. That is the evidence that you is you and me is me. And if it doesn't, continue to survive after physical death. Now next week I'll get into dreams. I had one last night. Did I know that I was I or me was me during that dream? I did. We'll get into Alzheimer's. That's Sharon's question. Comatose and catatonic states. The Bible screams at us over and over, continuity of identity, continuity of self, immortality of the soul. It's everywhere in the Bible because it's only that truth that proves that you are you, proves your identity, proves the identity of your loved ones. If it doesn't exist, it's all false. If it's all false, God isn't good. None of us are saved. And it's a mess. Only the truth continuity of soul allows for the statement at the resurrection because what's I, what am I going to do at the resurrection I'm going to look for my dad and he's going to come to me and he's going to say something to me what's he going to say <laughs> no he's going to, everyone says that for those of you on the internet Kathy said he's going to say you are right and I'd have to say be more specific <laughs> but, no, he's going to say to me, he's going to say, it's me. How does he know it's him? Because his soul survives physical death. It continues to exist. It has to, or he can't know it's him. And that's the point. Continuity of soul, which is what the Bible teaches, immortality of the soul, is really continuity of self. It has to be true. And the Bible says it's true. In order for the statement to be made, it is me at the time of resurrection. Okay, let's rise and be dismissed.